Thank you. You please be seated for just a moment. I don't know about you, but I just didn't feel like I was quite through getting my praise on. And I appreciate these musicians and their great skill and our ability to put the precious name of Jesus on our hearts and on our lips tonight. I am in every imaginable way a debtor to Brother Mike, to Brother Chris, to Brother Glenn, who years ago invited me to come to this church and to this conference. My heart has been radically blessed and deeply impacted by the preaching this morning and by the music tonight. Thank you to every singer, every choir member, our musicians, the technicians in the back, every person who had even what may seem to be the smallest part in helping to put on this conference. I want to say personally, thank you. The Holy Spirit has ministered to my heart and my life through your gift of service. I will leave this place changed for having been in your presence as we are in the Lord's presence together. Would you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the New Testament and the book of Acts, the second chapter. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to be preaching from the 42nd verse, but we're going to back up and get into the text by looking at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 38. So we'll read in Acts 2, 38 and following. And I'm preaching tonight from Acts 2, verse 42, on this simple, simple subject... Why Christians need a church. Why Christians need a church. Let me go ahead and acknowledge I know that I'm preaching on a rainy Friday night for a Bible conference. Brother Mike, we're the cream of the crop, and that's the truth. Brother Chris, your bunch is downhill from this crowd. But I've also been at this long enough, 22 and a half years in the church where I now pastor, that some of the folks that begin to drift away from the church and drift away from the things of God and from the God of those things, there was a time they would have never missed a Friday night Bible conference service. And so I just want to remind you tonight that if you are born again blood-bought, I'm talking about if you're heaven-born and heaven-bound, you need a local body of believers, whether it's this church or some other church represented here tonight. You need some Christian friends and family that you can yoke up together with to worship Jesus Christ, serve Him, and fulfill His great commission at, in, and through a body of believers known as a local church. Tonight I want to talk to you from Acts chapter 2 about why Christians need need a church. If you're able and willing, I'll ask you to stand to show reverence to the reading of God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word. Bible students know that Acts chapter 2 is the story of the day of Pentecost. The power of God fell. The Holy Spirit began to move. A crowd gathered, and Simon Peter took his stand, preached the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and as he got to that part about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus... The crowd didn't wait on the invitation. They didn't have to have just as I am. They cried out as with one voice, Brothers, what must we do? In other words, they want to know what in heaven's name do I have to do? What do I have to know? What do I have to believe in order to be saved? And the answer to that question begins in Acts 2 and verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. 
And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And here's our text. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Father, with the same Holy Spirit that birthed your church upon the earth, I pray the same sweet Holy Ghost that moved the heart and hand of Dr. Luke to chronicle this great story for us. I pray that same precious Holy Spirit would have absolute control in this service, literally moving up and down every aisle, in and out of every pew, touching every heart, changing every life, strengthening every congregation represented in this building tonight to the ultimate end that sinners would be saved, backsliders brought home, churches strengthened, and Jesus Christ preeminently glorified. We make our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen. Be seated, please. The church has fallen on hard times. It's always had critics from without who call us hypocrites, charlatans, and religious nuts. And if we're really honest, we've got a few crazy cousins in the family that give them good reason to say that we're a few french fries short of a Happy Meal. Do you know what I'm talking about? They say that any religious system is just a crutch to prop up those that are mentally weak and spiritually incapable. But in the last several years, the last decade in particular, from my observation... The church has an increasing number of critics, not numbered on the outside, but an increasing number of critics taken from among our own ranks. Hardly a week goes by that I don't read some article in some Christian publication or see some post making the rounds on the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and it's someone who's supposedly a leader in the Lord's church, and he is taking the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to task. And I'm coming tonight to say, as a Christian, you better be careful how you talk about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because the church is the bride of Christ, and Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, won't take any more kindness to somebody knocking on his bride than any other man with testosterone in his veins would think very much about somebody knocking on his bride. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? I've come tonight to say the church of the living God has been good in the past. It's doing mighty fine tonight and it's got a great future because Jesus said that I am the Christ, I'm the son of the living God and upon that rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whatever your church is going through tonight, I'm telling you, don't worry about the outlook. Take care of the uplook. Jesus is alive and well. He's the Lord and the head of the church. And if you are one of his children, you need a church. In this one verse of Scripture, Acts 2 and verse 42, we'll, we'll, we'll peek out a few verses around it tonight, but primarily from that one verse alone, I want to show you three reasons why Christians need a church. Now, if you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're not saved. God bless you for being here tonight. Even someone that's not a Christian could benefit and be profited by connecting up with a body of Christians called a church, especially if you're here tonight and you hear that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, rose from the dead, and if you repent and believe the gospel, you can be saved. But I've come tonight primarily to talk to those who profess a relationship with Jesus and to show you from this verse three reasons why Christians need a church. First of all, Christians need a church because church is a place, write this down now, where Christian discipline is demonstrated. Where Christian discipline is demonstrated. 
A church is a place where you can regularly, habitually, and systematically demonstrate your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to be a brain surgeon or a theologian to understand this. The word discipline is based on the same root word as the word for disciple. In fact, you get all the way over to the eighth letter of those words before they're even spelled differently. Simply put, there's no such thing as an undisciplined disciple. There is no such thing as a disciple of Jesus Christ that does not regularly, habitually, and systematically demonstrate that they are a follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the main places that that can happen is at a place called the church. Did you see it in verse 42? And they continued steadfastly. Now, as we think about the discipline that they demonstrated, I want you to notice two things about that crowd. Number one, they were saved. They were saved. The Bible does not say that all of Jerusalem continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The Bible doesn't say that all of Israel continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The Bible does not say all the world continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Could I get it a little closer to home? The Bible does not say that everybody that lives on this street out in front of the church will continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The Bible doesn't say everybody in Lebanon, Tennessee, everybody in this county, this state, this nation, or this world will continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. But now when it comes to they, the Bible says that they continued steadfastly. That raises the question, who in the world were they? That's why we read beginning back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and I reminded you that tens of thousands of people, no doubt, were in the city of Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. The power of God fell in that upper room, and they began to speak with other languages as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. That was quite an amazing sight. It was quite an amazing sound, and people began to gather to see what in the world was going on over by that upper room. And some people say, well, it's still morning time, but I believe they've been hit the sauce. I think they've been hitting the stuff. I think they're a little tipsy-topsy. I think they're a little bit drunk. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I, I think they're not going to pass the sobriety test. And the Bible says that Simon Peter took his stand with the eleven and said, Men of Israel, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, but this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and the sons and daughters shall prophesy. And he reached back into the pages of the Old Testament, and Simon Peter dusted off a spot and started preaching about the precious Lord Jesus Christ. Prophesied in the Old Testament, revealed in his life 33 years of absolute sinless perfection, died on the cross for sin, even though it happened with the hands of godless men, it was in accordance with the preordained foreknowledge and plan of Almighty God. And Simon Peter said, though God used your hands to crucify, God was in charge and to prove it, God the Father raised God the Son from the dead of whom we are all witnesses and you need to repent and and believe the gospel. And the Bible says they were pricked in their heart by the Holy Ghost. They repented of their sin. They went public for Jesus in the watery grave of believers' baptism, saying to all of the world, Christ is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. The gospel is my foundation. I am a Christian. And then the Word of God says that they continued steadfastly. Now, why do we need to note tonight that they were saved? Listen very carefully. Because it makes perfect sense for somebody who doesn't claim to have tasted the grace of Calvary to be in the bed on Sunday morning. 
It makes perfect sense for somebody who's never experienced the invasion of grace that transferred them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light to be in a bass boat or a deer stand or a turkey blind or at the mall or sipping coffee watching the Democrats and the Republicans gripe at each other in the Sunday talk shows. But it makes no sense to this preacher tonight that somebody that realizes they were on their way to a devil's hell when the precious Holy Spirit invaded their life and birthed them into the family of God, transferring them from spiritual death unto spiritual life everlasting. It makes no sense for those people to have no concern about being in the church of the living God. Now, now everybody didn't devote themselves, but they did. They did. I want you to imagine for just a moment tonight uh, that we leave this building and head out into the parking lot and and because of the rain and the slick parking lot, your child or your grandchild, a five, five six-year-old little child, is about to be run over and injured by a car. But I'm there and I see that. And I go push them out of the way into safety. And in the process, I get hit by a car and hospitalized. When I get out of the hospital... This church is going to throw a little fellowship in my honor back in the church fellowship hall. Can I be real honest with you? I kind of expect you to be there. It's not going, not going to go well between the two of us if I come, come in on crutches because of what I did for your family. And I hear that you had a t-ball game. Not only do I expect you to come, now I'm just bearing my soul. This may sound fleshly, Brother Tommy, but, but when, when, when the moderator stands up and says, three cheers for Brother Mike, I expect you to say, hip, hip, hooray. If it's your child or your grandchild and he says, is there anybody here that would like to take the microphone and say a word or two about Brother Mike, I expect you to put some homage on your lips and stand up and testify what I've done for you. And you laugh because it sounds absurd that somebody would not do those things. How much more would we come to the house of God and put our hands together and put worship on our heart and a song of praise on our lips for one who left the splendor of heaven died under the wrath of God for our sin, bodily raised from the dead, and loves us enough to save our sorry, sin-sick soul. Now, it makes sense for people who've never met the Master to not want anything to do with that. But it makes no sense at all for people who say they've met the Master to not want to meet with other people who've met the Master when the people who've met the Master meet together to praise the Master they say they've met. You say, could you say that again? Not if my life depended on it. <laughs> you need a church. Because church is a place where Christian discipline is demonstrated. They were saved. Note secondly, they were steadfast. I, I'm just working my way through verse 42. And they continued steadfastly. Now that word steadfast or steadfastly is an interesting word. It's obviously based on two participles. There are two parts of that word steadfast, stead and fast. Stead means place, a position, a location. 
Fast is on the same root word as the word for fastened, glued, fixed. There's a, you, you've been permanently affixed. So the word steadfast means that you are fastened in your stead. You are fastened in your place. You are in a fixed location. In other words, when the people of God gather, you have a location and you are fast in your stead. That means that if you say you're going to work as a greeter at the door, you can be counted on to be fast in that stead. That means if you've said that you're going to sing in the choir, there ought to be a spot, whatever your chair normally is, you ought to be fast in that stead. You ought to be somebody that can be counted on. You've got a fixed location, a fixed and fastened position in the church of the living God. And they continued, not wishy-washingly. Is that a word? I just baptize it and send it forth to you. They weren't wishy-washy. They weren't up and down and off and on and hot and cold and in and out, lukewarm, good-for-nothing, milk-toast Christians. They continued staying. Fastly, they planted their feet, bowed their back, and served God through the local church. Some time back, a man came out after I'd preached, and he came by the handshaking line where I greet our guest, and he said, Brother Mike, I've got a little bone to pick with the church. I said, Well, you need to come by tomorrow. I do all my bone picking on Mondays. But he went ahead, he said, I. I've recently been out for three months and nobody's even missed me. Now, in a church of any size, people can fall through the cracks. That's tragic when that happens. That's never intentional. But in this case, I told him something I've never said to anybody else before. In 22 and a half years, it's the first and only time I've ever said it to anybody. He said, I was gone for three months and nobody missed me. And I said, well, you know, that actually says more about you than it says about us. I want to be the kind of Christian that if I'm out for two Sundays, somebody said, whoa, whoa, somebody call Brother Mike. What are we going to do with a Sunday school class? What are we going to do with the ministry that he's performing? What are we going to do with that service spot? We, we, can't, we can't replace him very easily. Somebody get on the phone and find out if he's been sick. Find out if he had to work. Find out if he's had to be out of town. Because he's normally fast in his stead, and I hadn't been noticing him the last couple of Sundays. And the Bible says they continued steadfastly. There's a trend in the modern American church, and it is often described like this. Attendance is down across the nation, and it is described by this simple statement, that we're not seeing less people. We're seeing people less. There was a day, even in my lifetime, where to be considered a faithful church member, I'd say you had to be there at least three out of four Sundays a month. Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And now we have redefined the word commitment. People think absolutely nothing at all about dropping their commitment at the local church for the least little thing even at the last minute. And I want every parent in the building. If I thought you'd listen better, I'd have every parent with young kids in the building. I'd have you stand up, but I'm not going to do that. But I want you to listen very carefully. If you spend your life and raise your children teaching them that travel ball and ballet and piano recitals and bass fishing and deer hunting 
and turkey hunting and cheerleading competitions. Rah, 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 rah. You teach them that's more important than the house of God and the God of that house. I'm telling you, if you live long enough to get right with God yourself, you will look back and you will pity the day that you raise your children to not have a love for the house of the living God. Sometime back, I got a phone call from a man in my church. It was on a Thursday night. And he called and he said, Brother Mikey, I, I knew that he had season tickets to the Georgia Bulldogs. And I'm a big Bulldog fan. Don't talk smack to me afterward. It's irrelevant. <laughs> but I live about four and a half hours south of Sanford Stadium where the Bulldogs play. And so I don't... I don't even go to 3 o'clock games, 7 o'clock games. I can't get back to town on a Saturday night and still be fit to preach. Y'all understand? So he knew that I could only receive some tickets for a 12 o'clock kickoff. So he called me one Thursday night, said something's come up. I've got six tickets. I'm talking about box seats. I'm talking about really good seats. And uh, I've got six of them for you, your wife, and your four children. And we're playing the Kentucky Wildcats kickoff this Saturday at 12 o'clock. I've even got you a condo where all your family can stay on Friday night, go to the game on Saturday. I said, man, that'd be awesome. I'll go ahead and tell you now, we'll take it. I hung up with him and I no sooner hung up with him until I remembered. I've got two senior adults, a widower and a widow, getting married at the church Saturday at 11 o'clock. So I called him back. And by the way, I wasn't mad about this because I love my people. I called them back and I said, I, I'm not going to be able to take those tickets after all. I just remembered I got a, I got a wedding at the church on uh, Saturday morning. But when I hung up, I got this little backslidden, <laughs> devious thought. You know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to call the bride and groom and I'm going to tell them, Y'all going to have to get another preacher for Saturday morning. I got a last-minute chance to go to a ball game. I just wanted one time in my life to see what it feels like to shirk your duties at the house of God for a last-minute ball game. You know why you need a church? Where else are you going to regularly demonstrate your discipline to Jesus Christ? Unless you've got a local congregation where you've said, that's my church, those are my people, that's my sanctuary, those are my deacons, that's my staff, that's my choir right there, and that's my preacher. If you're a Christian, you need a church. Because church is a place where Christian discipline is demonstrated. Number two, and I've got to hurry, you say, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Secondly, church is a place where Christian doctrine is declared where doctrine is declared. Acts 2.42 continues, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles. What? The church is the only public place that has been ordained by God to be a bastion for the truth of Scripture. Now I'm going to say that again. The church is the only place that has been ordained and commanded by God to be the public place for the declaration of Holy Scripture. I know that Christian parents are supposed to teach the Word of God in the home. I'm not, ex I'm not talking about that. 
Um, really what I'm talking about is the fact that the Rotary Club does a good job engaging the business community. The Exchange Club, Club does a great job engaging the industry in this community. The Lions Club does a good job ministering to the visually impaired and to their family members. The Kiwanis Club does a good job. The local library does a good job checking out books. The Beta Club does a good job promoting academics in the school. The Booster Club does a good job promoting athletics in the community. But there is only one place that the Word of God says of itself is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth, and that's the church of the living God, which is the house of God. You need a a church as a Christian because the church is a place where Christian doctrine is declared and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I want to say two simple things about that doctrine. First of all, the source of their doctrine. The Bible simply calls it the apostles' doctrine. I don't mean to talk down to this crowd tonight but they preach primarily from two different sources. It is very important that you understand in a day where one of the most prominent preachers in America continually says we need to unhitch ourselves from the pages of the Old Testament, the apostles did not unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. In fact, the very first sermon of the New Testament age was an Old Testament sermon preached by Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost. And throughout the pages of your New Testament, the writers are regularly and constantly saying it is written. They are drawing for their text the pages of the Old Testament, but they are also declaring the revelation of God that is being given to them that we now have recorded as our New Testament. What they taught by revelation, we now teach by declaration. What I'm trying to say is, if you've got a real bona fide, born-again, blood-bought church, when the preacher gets up to preach, he doesn't come to give you his opinion. He doesn't come to share his philosophy. He doesn't come to tell you the way he thinks things ought to be. He comes to declare without fear, favor, or compromise what thus saith the Lord God as recorded in His Word. I'm not come tonight to be political, but listen to me. I don't come to the pulpit to tell you what I think about the president. I come to tell you what I believe about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't go to the pulpit to tell you what I think about the latest pop star. I go to the pulpit to talk about the bride and morning star. I don't come to tell you three ways to be a better you, how to discover the champion in you, how every day can be a Friday, how you can grow better petunias in your greenhouse. I've come to declare to you the apostles and the prophets doctrine and to tell you you need to believe the living God and and His Word. The source of their doctrine. They were proclaiming the truth of the Word of God. This congregation is looking for a pastor. May I just stop for a moment and tell you the number one thing you ought to look for? It ought not be whether or not you think he dresses cool, which in this day means he looks like he buys his jeans in the women's department and has a crazy hairdo, looks like he's in desperate need of a hairbrush. The most important thing you can find out is not does he tell funny jokes that make me laugh, not does his preaching have captivating introductions or compelling conclusions, it's not is he a gifted administrator, does he know how to do this and does he know how to do that. Those things have their place, but the number one thing, and it ought to permeate everything else on the list, does he preach the Word of God? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the source of their doctrine. I'll say a second word now about the substance of their doctrine. That word doctrine is an interesting word. It 
would give us our English word didactic, but unless you're a teacher or a college professor, you probably haven't used the word didactic all day long. It, it simply means instruction, and it gives the picture and the idea of drawing a line or cutting a line. It's a line drawn in the theological sand. You know what they continued steadfastly in? Letting the men of God draw a line in the sand and the implication is everything on that side of the line is wrong and everything on this side of the line is right. They continued steadfastly letting the preacher tell them that right is right and will always be right and wrong is wrong and will always be wrong. What I'm trying to tell you tonight, I wouldn't go to a church where I felt happy about everything every sermon that got preached because I know myself too well. If the preacher is preaching the whole counsel of God, sometimes he's going to encourage me, sometimes he's going to comfort me, sometimes he's going to exhort me, but sometimes the Holy Spirit of God is going to get all in my business and use the preacher's mouth to do it, and he's going to rebuke me, he's going to confront me, he's going to correct me, and the Spirit of the living God is going to get in my face and say, Mike Stone, your attitude is wrong. Mike Stone, your motives are wrong. Mike Stone, your agenda is wrong. Mike, your heart is wrong. Mike, your beliefs are wrong. And if you want to get right, the Word of God's not changing to accommodate you. You better get your life lined up under the authority of the Word of God. You know what they continued steadfastly in? The revelation of God moving through the heart and mouth of those apostles, telling them what was right and what was wrong. Sometimes you ought to leave the church house. I mean, on your, on, on, on your, on your britches leg, just, just rejoicing in the Lord. And every once in a while, you ought to leave saying, Preacher, can't really say I enjoyed that, but I sure did need it. May I humbly ask you a few questions? In a culture that believes your kids and grandkids part crawled out of evolutionary pond scum, where else are they going to hear in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth if they don't hear it at the church house? In a culture that believes anybody can marry anybody else that they want to marry, where else is your family going to be taught that for this reason man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh? In a culture where just last week the United States Senate could not give protection for children born alive as a result of a botched abortion. Where else in this sin-sick world are your children and family members going to hear that God said, I formed you in the womb. I knit you together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. My work is marvelous in your life. In a culture that says whatever you believe is fine as long as you sincerely believe it. Where but the church are they going to hear there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. In a world that believes that all roads lead to heaven, where else but the church of Jesus Christ will declare that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In a world system that tells your family that God just wants you to be happy, who but the church of Jesus Christ is going to say, it is written, I, the Lord your God, am holy, and you shall be holy. Your family needs a church because church is a place where Christian discipline is demonstrated, where Christian doctrine is declared. Thirdly and finally, you need a church because church is a place where Christian duties are 
demonstrated, where Christian duties are displayed. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. It was over 58 years ago. Friday, January the 20th, 1961. The youngest president in the country had just taken the oath of office and John F. Kennedy was to give his inaugural address. It was 22 degrees in the nation's capital with a wind chill factor of 7. That's why historians think that it was the shortest inaugural address in recorded history, less than 14 minutes long. He was not a Baptist preacher. But by far the most famous excerpt of that 14-minute speech was a 22-word statement that you could still find etched in the slain president's grave marker. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I don't know exactly where he got that idea, but he might have gotten it from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. That seems to be what's on the heart of the Spirit of God as he describes that early New Testament church. So as I move to conclusion tonight, may I paraphrase the late president and say, so my, fan, my fellow Hillcrestites, ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. There are a couple of things that we find here, and they're really reflected throughout the balance of chapter 2. This, I'm just going to give you two things, and it's not an exhaustive list of the duty we need to display at the local church, but, but let me just give you two things. First of all, I want you to look at the bread that they shared. The bread that they shared. For the Bible says in verse 42 that they, they continued in fellowship and in breaking of bread. Now, many scholars think that that phrase, breaking of bread, refers to the Lord's Supper. Uh, We can't be really dogmatic about that, but I do know this. It's connected to that beautiful Greek word, fellowship, or koinonia in the Greek. They devoted themselves to koinonia and to the breaking of bread. Look right here, and I will give you a visual illustration. The word koinonia literally means to be intertwined, interconnected, interwoven. In extra-biblical literature, this word koinonia would even be used to describe the physical act of a husband and wife coming together in marital intimacy. Now certainly that's where the analogy would end in terms of our relationship in the local church, but it is a word that describes a close, intimate, personal relationship. We're, We're not just hanging out together. We're growing in grace and the knowledge of God together. We're not just eating together. We're walking with Jesus together. And the bread that they shared is an indication that their lives were interwoven and interconnected with one another. Do you know what I recently told my church? Our lives ought to be so one together in this local congregation that when I drink a Pepsi, you ought to burp. I heard about two rednecks that were out on the farm and a crop duster came over and Clarence said to Leon, he said, Whoo, I sure would hate to be way up there in that crop duster. I don't like heights. I'd hate to be way up there in that airplane. And Leon said, well, I would too, but I'd sure hate a whole lot worse to be up there without that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> 
This world is hard enough without this. You can call me in need of a crutch if you want to. I don't know how I would make it. If I didn't have some Christian brothers and sisters that I could lean on when I was weak and call out to pray for me when I needed them to get a hold of God on my behalf. There's a popular motto and a phrase that is, uh, is popular with a lot of churches in America today. Probably even in this city, there's a church that has the motto, doing life together. They may have it on their coffee mugs or their t-shirts. You know, the Hillcrest Baptist Church, doing life together. The Calvary Baptist Church, doing life together. That phrase may be overused, but it cannot be overstated. God wants us to do life together. I have a confession to make. This is difficult in our hectic, busy age. We run from here to there, can to can't, sun up to sundown. When is the last time you just had some Christian friends over to the house? No agenda. Except fellowship and the breaking of bread. One reason we don't want to do it is because our house is dirty and we won't have to clean up. Let me give you, let me let you in on something. Their house is just as cluttered as your house, so get over it. Y'all boil some weenies, put on some potato soup, get some bread and some ketchup and mustard, and y'all break a little bread and have some fellowship together. The bread they shared. One last thing and I'm done. Not only the bread they shared, but the burdens they shared. For the Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Amen. Amen. Lean in close and listen carefully as I'm finishing. Their lives were not merely woven together as friends. Their lives were woven together as Christians. The world's not looking for friendliness. You can get friendliness from a nice waitress. But I tell you, the world is starving for some of this right here. They weren't just hanging out. They were leading one another closer to Jesus. I recently told my congregation that if you want a good goal for a Christian friendship, a Christian marriage, a Christian Sunday school class, or a church, here's a good goal. When our lives finally part, by death, relocation, whatever it may be, I pray that I will leave you closer to Jesus on that day than on the day when we first met. I shared in the morning session about some challenges I've had lately in my own life. I, I testify tonight that I am great even though circumstances are not good and one of the biggest reasons for that is because I have never in all my life felt my soul undergirded by the prayers of the people of God. They not only shared bread, they shared burdens. And tonight when the invitation is given at the end of this service, when the altar is filled and people come down to pray, it's a God-honoring thing that while you're kneeling here, you feel a hand on your back, a hand on your shoulder. It's a brother or sister letting you know I'm praying with you and I'm praying for you. We're going to go through this thing together. Bill Gaither once 
describe what I'm talking tonight with a song that said, You will notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family. These folks are so dear. When one has a heartache, we all shed a tear. And we rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. He said, that's why I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain and cleansed by His blood. A joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. For I'm part of the family, the family of God.